I'd like to have us turn to our text for this morning, Psalm 134. Psalm 134, and we are wrapping up uh, a sermon series uh, on the Psalms of Ascent. And so we've been in this series for quite a while, all the way from Psalm 120, now here to Psalm 134, and we conclude it this morning. And here in Psalm 134, the psalmist writes this uh, to God's people, Israel back then, as well as to us as God's people today. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, you who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who is the maker of heaven and earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, theater folks can be a bit odd. And I can say that because I used to be one of them. Uh, For instance, I was friends with one of the star actors in my high school theater company uh, back when we were in high school together, and he was a nice guy, extremely talented of all of us in the theater company, definitely the one that we thought had a shot, potentially, at making it uh, in the theater industry. And he was normal in just about every way, except for the scarf. For whatever reason, he wore a scarf every single day. Um, And don't get me wrong, I mean, it looked great on him. He could pull off a scarf better than some people can pull off pants, okay? It never clashed with his outfit. It never seemed out of place. It never ruined his vibe. In fact, it probably would have been weird to see him without it. The only odd thing was that he wore it year-round. While most people, understandably, I think, would put their scarves away after winter, not him. He'd continue to wear it. It didn't matter if it was 90 degrees and humid in the middle of summer. He was still always in a scarf. Well, there's something else that theater folks do that's also a bit odd. And that's the way that they encourage each other before a performance. You probably know this already, right? Because it's become kind of famous. Uh, Before performance, theater folks don't say, you know, good luck. Uh, I hope it goes well out there. Do a good job. Instead, they say what? Break a leg, exactly, you got it. That's the theater way of saying, do a good job. Well, in the same way, that's actually what the psalmist is doing here in Psalm 134 as well. He's talking to the people in the temple courts here in this psalm, and he gives them a bit of encouragement. Break a leg, he says. Do a good job. Worship and praise the Lord to the best of your ability. That's why the psalmist starts out the way he does here at the beginning of this psalm. In verse one, he writes this, praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Now, according to commentators, uh, there's sort of two options for who the psalmist's audience is here, who it is that he's speaking to in this verse and also in this psalm. The first is that the psalmist could be talking to normal people, okay? Uh, You know, ordinary, everyday worshipers who had come there to the temple in order to offer their sacrifices. Uh, In other words, people like you, an average congregant member of the worshiping community. They're the ones who, like we've talked about throughout the series, would have made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem during the various religious festivals in order to worship God at the temple. So that's one possibility for who the psalmist is speaking to here. The more likely one, though, is that the psalmist is actually addressing the clergy members at the temple, the priests and the Levites who served there, people more like me, uh, the the people who worked at the temple full-time, the temple professionals, if you will, who helped facilitate and make everyone else's worship, the ordinary people's worship, possible. More likely, that's who the psalmist is talking to here. And the reason for that is simple. 
After all, again, in verse one, he writes, praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. That's the key phrase there, who minister by night. Because the average person wasn't in the temple at night. They'd be there during the day, sometimes throngs of them, especially during the festivals that these psalms would have been used for. But by the time evening rolled around, most of the ordinary people would have left. They would have gone home. Uh, They would have left to either, uh, if they lived nearby, to their own homes to go and stay there for the night, or if they had come from a ways away, some other part of the country, they would have gone to an inn or a guest house for the night before coming back the next day. And so the temple courts would have been more or less deserted each evening by the time it came for the priests and the Levites to do the evening sacrifice. Um, And so they would have had to perform that sacrifice on their own. In fact, at certain times of years, they, uh, uh, certain times of year, they would have had to keep performing those sacrifices on their own. And that's because during the various religious festivals the Jewish people came to Jerusalem for, the worship there, much like my friend's scarf wearing, was round the clock. The sacrifices didn't end. And so the priests and the Levites would have had to work in shifts, including through the night, to perform their duties, to continue sacrificing, and to keep praising God until all the rest of the worshipers would reconvene with them again in the morning. It would be like, you know, we were here yesterday. It would be almost as if we all had gathered together for worship, and then once everyone had left, uh, the worship team and I would have just kept praising, kept worshiping, kept things going all the way until you got back this morning. That's what it was like for the priests and the Levites at the temple during the various religious festivals. And make no mistake, that was difficult tiring work. It would have required endurance, stamina, and perseverance, and the priests and the Levites who were going about that work also would have needed to have the right mindset in order to carry it out. While the people were there during the day, that probably came kind of naturally. A bit like a performer on stage can feed off the energy of an audience uh, during the performance. Surrounded by all the other worshipers during the daytime, the temple servants probably didn't have to manufacture feelings of reverence or a commitment to their tasks. But that might have been a different story at night. Because after the sun went down and the temple courts became dark and everyone left, it would have been a bit difficult, I think, for the priests and Levites to keep things going all on their own. As Eugene Peterson notes in his book on these psalms, a long obedience in the same direction, most probably the people who were first addressed by this command in verse 1 to praise the Lord were the professional leaders of worship in the Jerusalem temple, the Levites. They worked in shifts around the clock during festival time and through the night some of them were always on duty. But the great danger in those hours was that the worship might be listless and slovenly. After all, what can you expect at three o'clock in the morning? And so the psalmist encourages them here. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, he says. In other words, he tells them, break a leg. Okay, I know it's late or early. But keep it up, keep going, keep worshiping and praising God. Now the Hebrew word uh, for that word in English, praise, barak, is kind of an interesting word. That's the word that the psalmist uses here in his break-a-leg encouragement to the workers in the temple. Barak the Lord, he tells them. Praise the Lord. Worship him. Glorify him. Even at three in the morning, that's what you're called to do. So don't give up. 
Keep going. Keep glorifying God. That's the meaning that that word Barak has, has when it's applied to people in Scripture. When used of human beings, Barak means to worship, to praise, to glorify, and adore. But what's interesting about that word is that it has a different meaning when it's applied to God in Scripture. And that's because the word Barak can also mean to bless. When applied to people, it means to praise, but when applied to God, Barak means something more along the lines of to speak well of, to bestow God's favor on, to, de- to declare pleasant and pleasing in God's eyes. And that's the way that the psalmist uses this word at the end of this psalm. In the beginning of this psalm, he uses it to describe the praise that, t- that the temple servants would have given to God, but in verse three, he uses it differently. He writes, may the Lord barak you, bless you from Zion, he who is the maker of heaven and earth. In other words, in verse three, the psalmist says, may the Lord speak well of you. May he bestow his favor upon you. May he declare you pleasant and pleasing in his eyes. May he bless you. And that, I think, gets at an important dynamic of our worship of God. You see, there's a relationship there between the two meanings of that word, Barak, a back and forth, a reciprocity. The way that the psalmist uses those two meanings of Barak here in this psalm, he's saying that they lead into each other. Our Barak of God, our praise of him, in turn leads to his Barak of us, his blessing. And it works the other way too, because God's blessings also prompt and lead to our praise of him. And so on and so forth, back and forth. That's the nature of Barak. In fact, that's the nature of our worship of God. When we do it, when we Barak, God, when we praise him, it leads to him doing it, him blessing us. And when God does it, it leads to us doing it. Praise and blessing blessing and praise, back and forth, on and on, in a never-ending cycle in our relationship with God. And what I find interesting about that is that that's still the case today. After all, how do we start our worship here each week? We start it by praising God, right? With a song, we barak him. What comes next, though? Well, God barracks us, right? He blesses us with a response. He calls us to worship and greets us. It's a word of blessing. Welcome to the house of the Lord. May the, may the love of God the Father and the grace of Jesus Christ the Son and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's a blessing. And then it just keeps going from there because next we respond with more praise, right? Then God responds by calling us to confession. We respond by confessing our sins to him. He responds by blessing us with words of assurance and pardon and grace and mercy. We respond with more praise and the giving of our gifts. He responds with his word and if I do a good job, the sermon. And then we respond with more praise before he finally closes the whole thing out with an ending blessing. In other words, the same structure that the psalmist describes for worship in this psalm is still the structure that organizes our worship as Christian believers today. Our praising God leads to his blessing. His blessing of us leads to our praising him. And so on and so forth it goes. Praise and blessing, blessing and praise, back and forth, one after the other, always and forever. That brings up an important question, though, which is what if for some reason or another, We don't feel 
like praising God. We don't feel like worshiping him. What if we're in one of those seasons and the fact is that they come for all of us at different points in our lives when our praise sort of gets stuck in our throat and it can't make it on up and past our lips? What if our praise feels unnatural, inauthentic, and forced, like trying to keep sacrifices going at three o'clock in the morning? Well, says the psalmist, force it. In verse 2, he writes this, Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. Peterson comments on that verse and he writes, The biblical response to that feeling that our worship is inauthentic is lift up your praising hands to the holy place and bless God. You can lift your hands regardless of how you feel. It's a simple motor movement. You may not be able to command your heart, but you can command your arms. Lift your arms in blessing. Just maybe your heart will get the message and be lifted in praise. We are psychosomatic beings. Body and spirit are intricately interrelated. Go through the motions of blessing God and your spirit will pick up the cue and follow along. A little later, Peterson continues, Humphrey Bogart once defined a professional as a person who did a better job when he didn't feel like it. That goes for a Christian, too. Feelings don't run the show. There is a reality deeper than our feelings. Live by that. In other words, as the psalmist says, break a leg. Keep going. Keep praising. Whether it's 3 p.m. or 3 a.m., whether you feel like it or not, whether your worship comes naturally or no, don't stop. Just keep glorifying God. Praise and blessing, blessing and praise, on and on in a forever embrace. But this psalm goes beyond a simple encouragement to keep praising God. And that's because Psalm 134 also functions actually as the perfect bookend to Psalm 120 in completing the sequence of the Psalms of Ascent. Remember that Psalm 120 starts the Psalms of Ascent by picturing the psalmist marooned in a far off and hostile country. In verse 5 of that psalm we read, Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Just a little review, but when we looked at Psalm 120, we said that those were far off tribes, right? The Meshach lived somewhere in Asia Minor, the Kedar were a group of of Arabian Bedouins. Both of them, though, had barbaric reputations and were known for their violence and antagonism, especially against God's people. But if that's where the psalmist starts these psalms, in a far-off, hostile country, he ends them in a much better place, right? Because far from being isolated and exiled from his people and his home, the psalmist ends these psalms of ascent in the temple, in the very house of God, at home offering words of encouragement to the servants and priests there. As Old Testament scholar Alec Matyer writes in his devotional commentary, as a word, Kedar means black, dark, and in Psalm 120 it reflected the darkness of uncongenial circumstances. But how very different is the darkness of nighttime worship in the house of the Lord. And indeed, it's quite the shift. And there's a theological shift between the first Psalm of Ascent and this last one too. You might remember that when we looked at Psalm 120, we talked about the theme of repentance. That's the theme that Eugene Peterson gave Psalm 120 in his book that we've been using with this series. And Peterson said that that, repentance, is the first step in our way of discipleship, the road of faith, this long obedience that we walk as Christian believers. In other words, the first thing that you have to do as a Christian in order to become one of God's people is repent turn away from sin and turn back to the Lord. 
But if that's the first step, then this is where it leads. Peterson writes, the way of discipleship that begins in an act of repentance, teshuva, concludes in a life of praise, barakah, and it concludes in a life of blessing as well. We have walked a, a, a long road with these psalms. It's been 15 weeks since we started this series. That's more than three months. And along the way, we've covered a whole variety of different topics that relate to our faith as Christians. But this is where it all leads. It's a microcosm of sorts of the Christian life. You see, we all start this Christian journey in the same place. We all start this journey far from the Lord. And yet, we all end in his house. Our first step in a way of discipleship is the act of repentance, but our last step is the step of praise and blessing. We begin as pilgrims, travelers, people on the way, but we end as disciples, followers, and worshipers of God. And when you think about it that way, it's more or less the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? After all, yesterday, we celebrated the coming of a Savior who, though we were far away, has taken us and brought us near to God again. Though we were sinners and rebels against God, has made us his family members and children. And though we deserved his judgment and wrath, has given us instead love, grace, mercy, and blessing beyond belief. That's the grace of our God. That is his mercy. That's his love and salvation for us. And that's also why we barack him, why we praise him. That's why we walk this road of long obedience to him. And that's why we can know his barack of us, his blessing of us, the blessings that he bestows in our relationship with him. It starts in repentance. It traverses this whole variety of different topics and aspects of our faith on the way, but it all ends in praise and blessing. That's where this long obedience leads. Praise the Lord, break a leg, but experience his blessing in response too. Thanks be to God, amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, our life of faith is indeed a long road, a long obedience. It lasts our entire lives, Lord. Along the way, we touch on all these different areas of transformation and sanctification that you make possible in our lives through, the, through your Holy Spirit. And yet, God, it all starts in repentance and it all leads to our praise of you and the blessings that you give us in response. Thank you for your blessings, Lord. The most important of which is the one we celebrated yesterday, our Savior Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.